Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A media.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Conversations with Z and Vin. And we're continuing today, Z, with some themes that we talked about last time and, in fact, in some of our previous podcasts. So if I go back, we talked about what is truth. We talked about the visceral loop, and a big part of the visceral loop is understanding really what's going on in the environment. And then last week when we talked about anxiety, our special guest, Dave Amos, who's a private investigator, was talking about investigation and really peeling back the layers and the biases that people have to get at the essence of what something is. And we talked a bit about why that's so difficult to do. So today we're continuing in that vein of what is truth, what is reality, with a slightly different focus. Today we're going to apply that to the self. And I think this is critical. And if I just speak from my own experience, so much of how we live needs to comport with who we are. And if we want to have a satisfying life, satisfy whatever our desires are, our passions, express ourselves in a way that feels fundamental, connect with other people in an authentic manner. And if we're having challenges, figure out why we're having those challenges and how to move forward. We have to do that with a solid understanding of the self. So Z, if we don't have that foundation, as we talked about, we don't know where we are. How can we possibly know where we need to go uh, to get to remedy and to get, I would argue, to a more vital existence, we have to start with a pretty deep understanding of who we are. And it sounds simple enough, but on the one hand, it's very simple. On the other hand, you could spend a lifetime, or if you read the scriptures, you could talk about multiple lifetimes, maybe hundreds of lifetimes, answering this question of who am I, and stripping away the layers and the conditioning that get in the way of a true understanding of who we are. We talked about how this starts at birth, uh, just with the names that were given Names have certain meanings. That meaning may have nothing to do with who we are or what we aspire to achieve in this life. It's more likely a reflection of what direction our parents want us to go in. So the conditioning starts from birth. And then we pick up these narratives of how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to do, what is going to bring pride to the family, what is an honorable profession, what is going to create dishonor and pain. So we're picking all this up along the way. And in a sense, it may not be true or false. It just may work for some people. It may not work for others. So I think when we're talking about what is true, it's important to really hone the discussion in on what is true for us. So it's not universal. What's true for me and how I am as an individual and how I function optimally might be very different from you, see? So you might go around and just knock people around for sport and take great pride in beating the crap out of other people. Maybe I'm a little more sensitive. You know, forgive me, I'm a humanitarian. I like to see people uh, stay out of hospitals and wake up with a smile on their face. So just the way that we interact with people and the type of people that we choose to be around is going to be different. And if I step away from uh, just kidding around and think a little more fundamentally about myself, it's interesting. I mean, it's been a journey for me. So I've discovered a lot about myself. There's this entire creative side of myself that I never tapped into. And I think a lot of that was just the the path that I'd started on years ago. 
So I'd gone to good schools. I'd followed a business engineering education. That led to a career on Wall Street. And I steadily progressed in that direction. And it really wasn't until my mid-30s when I started asking myself, what means something to me? What is going to create a more meaningful life? What's going to allow me to operate in a more effective way as a human being, as a father, that I started to explore other aspects of myself and started seeing myself in very different ways. And in fact, you've provided a lot of that narrative for me because I think you see things in me that I never saw myself. And that's helped create a more clear picture in my mind of who I am, what's important to me, what direction I want to take my life. Uh, but it's a work in process. And uh, I just think about yesterday, in fact, uh, I was dealing with my, my kids. And usually I try and stay pretty calm around my kids, but they weren't listening to me. And my oldest, actually, it was kind of funny. Uh, so I've got this little recording studio set up in the apartment so we can do our podcast. And she was going on about how ugly this recording studio is and how it's ruining our living room and why can't we just take it out? And then she goes over there, little seven-year-old, and starts shaking the thing and trying to pick it up. And I say, no, don't do that. There's stuff inside. There's a heavy microphone. So she starts moving it, even though I'm telling her not to do it. And she tilts it. And of course, uh, this big microphone falls down, dents our wooden floor, and actually she managed to make this thing land on my computer cord. So it severed the computer cord. So now I don't have any power going into my computer, which means today that I'm doing the podcast on my cell phone instead of the microphone. So hopefully the sound quality sounds okay. But in any case, we go through this and I just exploded. I mean, it was like a volcano. And I, I felt this way a lot of my life that I've just been repressed. I hold things back and then periodically they, they explode. And I think I've been able to deal with this more effectively, but yesterday it just came out and I started screaming and I scared the shit out of my kids. Maybe I didn't, I don't even know, see, and maybe this is something your perspective would be helpful on. Maybe I didn't, but I feared that I really scared them. I at least scared them to some extent. And on the one hand, it didn't seem like a very effective way of dealing with the situation. On the other hand, it did provide immediate relief because I got all of that out. And whereas in the past, maybe I would have suppressed it. It came out, and two minutes later, I was fine, or at least a lot better than I had been, and I was able to move on. So that's something that I'm working on right now or just reflecting on and trying to think about what the right way is to deal with those types of situations. And I think that comes to self-knowledge. Uh, who am I? What sort of interaction do I want to have with my family? What's the best way of dealing with these challenges? So just a little bit of insight for myself. Maybe it makes the discussion a little more real for our audience. But Z, why don't you kick us off and maybe share your perspective? Why is it so important to have a strong knowledge of the self? Um, Vin, all of our contemplative practices um, that deal with promoting your own personal evolution, supporting the progression of the self, both gross and uh, cosmic, requires a basic thing, a knowledge of self. Again, that knowledge isn't has, doesn't have to be absolute knowledge, but it has to be enough knowledge to know you're not where you want to be or the direction in which you'd like to be, and that will change as you progress forward. And you stated that there are many embellishment, many layers, a lot of opaqueness to 
this idea of self, the layers and layers and layers of debris that obscure who you are. And the whispers of the original self are ever apparent, and sometimes they can make people almost schizophrenic because you do one thing, you live one way, but you hear something else. You often hear people who the world will pat them on the back for being successful in a particular field, only later to find out they're extremely depressed, they got no joy from what they were doing. And um, that's because the layers upon them, whatever they were coated in, was irritating to whatever it was covering up. So before we can go on any type of journey of self-development or self-realization, there is a burden for us to be prepared to peel away the layers of false narratives. I didn't say good or bad. Those are false. I think about, I was telling you about a Buddhist monk, a lady monk I read about, and um, I was just looking her up as we talked, and um, her name is uh, Pima Trundran, and she was born Deidre Bloomfield Brown. And she wrote the funniest book about how she became Pima Trundran. She found out her husband was having an affair and was going to leave her. She hit him in the head with a skillet and walked out of the house. And she had completely immersed her life into being what other people wanted her to be. And she didn't know what she would do once she peeled those layers off, but she knew she wouldn't go back to that. And she became a well-known Buddhist monk and a Western woman who picked up this Eastern culture. Again, that's not everybody's journey, but it is a common theme. If you look at Malcolm X, he went from Malcolm Little to Malcolm X to El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz, Muhammad Ali, when he discovered who he was, he was no longer Cassius Clay. Cat Stevens became um, Ibrahim somebody. Cat Stevens. Yosef somebody. I, 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 I'm not sure what it was. Again, that's just a small part of the unlayering because if you think about the collective insanity that we typically have as people, we get excited about the announcement that a new baby is coming. And we already decide if the baby's a girl, it's going to be Susie. If it's a boy, it's going to be John, right? We, we decide that right away. We're not even thinking about who that person may be. We don't care who they we, but we care what we can wrap them in, how we can clothe them, how we want to shape them, how we want to remake our own life in them without ever getting to know them. So many Aboriginal cultures have rituals around child naming that happen after the birth of the child. And some kids go for a year or two with no name until they announce their own name in some cultures. In, in, in the Congolese culture, I know we reflect upon the history of our group and our ancestors and the stories of the encounters and let the kid pick their own name. Let it come through the ancestral channels so that that person's identity can be truly known. What do we mean their identity? The essence of that person the personality, the unique temperament 
of that individual. So they start the world with their own identity. And as they move through the world, of course, we socialize them and domesticate them uh, with the desire that we keep them out of harm's way and give them the tools and resources to advance their own existence. But there's a limit to that. There's a limit when we start forcing and shaping people into a likeness that we prefer, then we are doing more harm than good. And as you know, when I work with people every day, you see the struggles people have with trying to be uh, confined to an idea of who they are, be it an artist of any kind, be it a scientist, an engineer of any kind, but they were told, don't do that. This is what you do. You're Johnny, the, you're Johnny, the guitar player who is a good Christian guy, and you end up being Yusef somebody who really is into hardcore rock and roll and, and likes to uh, do Salat five times a day. Nobody saw that coming. Well, he always saw that, and a lot of the pain in his life was because even though he saw it, he couldn't interpret what that was. You used yourself as an example, Vin. You are a very powerful spoken word presenter, and um, uh, you have a, an extreme, extraordinary creative flow that I have seen only a few times in my life, and they were all um, uh, people that became historic wordsmiths. But you, you, you titled yourself something else. You were laid, something else was wrapped around you that clothed you, that didn't fit you right. Um, it, it is like a child putting on their father's shoes and stumbling around in shoes that don't fit or a person behaving in a manner that is so out of sync with their essence that it brings them pain, but because they know something else, they live with this pain. It's interpreted as depression, anxiety, rage issues, and then it turns into diseases of all kind. Uh, diseases of the digestion, consumptive diseases of all kind, because you're living with this discomfort. Imagine yourself yoked to a, a horse's saddle, or and, and, and you're told that you're a horse, but you know in your heart you're a human being. Imagine the pain of that, and that you've never known anything else except, in essence, it doesn't feel right. Being you doesn't feel right, because it's actually not you. So as we work on ourselves, and we work on our personal practice, as we understand that the inevitable goal of yoga is self-realization. You cannot go down that path unless you know what the self is, and I would say even clear what the self is not. What are you not? So I hear from people that are surrounded by others and relatives that have singular false narratives that they champion and they promote in a kind of a mantric type way, a mantric gospel of this is the way it is. And in your heart, you know, this isn't right. This doesn't sound right, but there's no other references around. So it brings you pain. That pain is immediately cleared, subdued by simply the proclamation of that's not me. I may not know me totally, but I know what's not me. Um, there are families that struggle. 
that they have a collective family voice that part of the encryption and the password to get into that family is to speak and act a certain way to agree upon certain norms and morals and you decide that you know what this doesn't sound right I love my family but it's not me and then you start to unlayer that and for a while when you peel away that varnish the skin is easily irritated you feel raw you feel exposed you may feel abandoned or alone but you can get used to it and then you feel freedom because freedom isn't free freedom comes with responsibilities and benefits and liabilities and ups and downs but you know what you're free so it is very healthy and it is imperative to truly good health to get to know the self and the self not you follow me then see the way you put it I think is so powerful this idea that we follow what other people have in mind for us and we play a certain role in the lives of friends family co-workers really everyone but the people that we deal with immediately are the ones who have much more of a vested interest in how we should act what role we should play how we fit into their broader reality and this whole idea that we don't know what's wrong always, but there's a sense that something isn't right is a very powerful one. And I've certainly felt that myself, that my life at times I was going in directions which felt horrifying and I couldn't articulate why. I mean, it just felt like a dead end, uh, like I was killing time until I would disappear from this planet. But if I just looked at all of the success metrics that I knew, that I'd been taught, I checked off every single box, whether it was money or education or job or being able, being married, everything seemed to be right. And so my conclusion was, God, there must be something wrong with me. What the hell is wrong with me? And it puts you in a very compromising position because unless you are able to step away from that and realize that there are other alternatives. If you keep on playing by those same rules and you keep on doubling down and trying harder, the problem is only get, going to get worse and worse. So the irony is that we try to fix the problem by doing more of the same, and it just intensifies the pain, the challenge, the suffering that we go through. And it, to me, it's, Incredible, actually, what a strong influence the people closest to us have. Uh, not necessarily that it's a strong influence, uh, because uh, certainly if there are people that we care about, respect, are close to, yes, we may consider very carefully what they say. But what surprises me a bit more is the vested interest that other people have in lives other than their own. I've always found this so strange, and I've seen a lot of this in my culture or in Asian culture more generally. Unfortunately, I haven't experienced as much of it. I mean, I've experienced some, but the more extreme forms I have not experienced, uh, things like you have to marry someone from a certain background or with a certain job 
or you need to be a doctor or an engineer, or you're going to bring great shame on the family. And I was like, who the hell cares? I mean, what difference does it make what someone else does? Well, why do you want to appropriate their spirit and commandeer their life? What possible benefit does that give you? I, I just never got it, see. It just always felt so odd to me. So fortunately, that's not something that I had to deal with in that form. But there are more subtle forms of it. And there are aspects of it that I see even to this day. And I guess now I'm more aware of it. So I at least know when it's happening. But it's still tough sometimes. It's things like just dealing with family, relatives. Why do you have to do certain things? Why do you have to work out? Why do you have to work out so much? it's like, I I don't know. I just do. I want to move. I mean, I I feel good. I'm sorry. It's not normal. Who else does this? Who else does this? Well, I don't know. I look around. I see a lot of fat people who might drop dead, who just have vacant expressions that are glued to their cell phones and their TVs, who can't even get it up because they've got no sexual function left. I guess these are the people that I'm supposed to emulate. It's so weird to me. And even if there isn't explicit disapproval, there's implicit disapproval. Like, I just don't get it. You know, why can't you swim with the tide, follow along, follow convention, stop rocking the boat, do what everyone else is doing? And I don't know. I, I think for me, the most illuminating time in my life was when I realized that I didn't have to do any of this, that it was a choice. And now I still feel the pressure. I mean, at times I still got to manage the fallout if I want to do certain things or avoid certain things or eat in a certain way. I mean, my diet, I experiment with different diets and that's inconvenient for some people. (laughs) Makes their life a little more difficult, increases their anxiety level. So I got to deal with that or explain it or ignore it or whatever. So the pressure is still there, but at least I'm aware of the pressure and I can step away and I can manage it. But man, this is one thing I've just never really understood. I guess at some level I get it. You know, we want people to conform. Maybe it just makes our life easier because it's easier to predict what someone else is going to do. Another theory I have about this is that if someone does something different than convention, it threatens our way of life. So it's like an implicit rebuke. And I remember reading a book, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. It was about someone who made a ton of money. And the title of the book was how to make a ton of money, something along those lines. And he said that if you're serious about making money, you can't listen to anyone else because you got to go and do your own thing. You're not going to get paid if you just work a standard job. So you have to take risks. You have to be out on your own. And you're going to have all sorts of people who come to you and say that they're concerned about you and don't try it. Don't do this. It's too much risk. What if it goes wrong? So they're going to be they're going to pretend to worry that you might fail. And that's where the concern is coming from. But the truth is that they're more concerned you're going to succeed (laughs) because God forbid you succeed. What the hell does it say about their life and the choices that they've made and uh, their station in life or their inability to take risk or do something more interesting? 
So those are a couple of things that I guess come to my mind when I think about why there is such a strong tendency for others to frame our reality for us. But maybe you can help us understand this. See, why do we behave this way? I mean, why are we constantly imposing our particular view of someone else on that person? Then there's a, based on what you said, and I, I was thinking sitting here, I, I, I'm going to just share what, you know, from my experiences. It's not so much that people are for, afraid that you will succeed. They're more afraid that their reality will just be dispersed because everything is in a certain position that equals their reality where each of us stay. That's what the class pecking order is all about. If everybody is in their place, then I know where I'm at, but you really don't, but it, it feels okay. It's, uh, I remember living in India and how certain people were so uncomfortable with a another cast of person doing something that was not appointed to that cast. And I always thought, well, that's the most ridiculous thing. Who cares if a person pursues a particular field of endeavor? And that's what they're interested in. But what they were really afraid of was that their own reality would be shaken up, questioned. They would have to then be on the side of the hero and strive in their own life. That was really the, what it was about. And so a lot of the pain is the pain of trying to hold together a fragile reality of what we think we are. So when we go to family to visit family and friends and we're choking down our truth so that we can fit in, fit into what? Will their love be withdrawn because you have different maybe social political views? You choose to love somebody that they don't they don't know and they don't want you to love. So a lot of it is about the fear of, just the general fear of. Our reality, our life is based on these, the vapor of false reality, right? And so when that disperses, then we have to redefine our life in real time. So I think that's where the itchiness comes from. Somebody says, why do you work out all the time? I don't know anybody that works out. They just told you right there, they don't know anybody that works out. They've never left Sloppyville or wherever they live. It's like, you're, I, I, I've told the story of uh, different heroes. I, I follow Formula One. And there's a young man named Lewis Hamilton. And he is now considered the greatest Formula One driver that has ever raced cars in the world. It's a very athletic event. So he's considered one of the greatest athletes in the world, being able to maneuver the car. And I keep up with his career. And what I'm most fascinated about is he decided when he was a little boy that he would be the world champion Formula One driver. It's just a beautiful story they've documented. And he started out with uh, remote control cars and then go-karts and then all the stages until he was 18 and became the youngest Formula One world champion. And now he's the greatest and has won many, many titles, seven titles, hundreds of races. No one has ever bested. But when he was a kid, there was a few things. They said, well, black people can't drive cars. 
They don't have the intelligence or the neurological capacity to manage these cars. And another thing, you don't have the money to go through Formula One school all the way to the top. So his dad said, if you want to do it and that'll make you happy, I'll get another job. I'll drive taxis or whatever I have to do to pay for go-kart lessons. So he got the go-kart, he did well in go-karting, and then the people around him started sabotaging their cars, slicing the tires, peeing in the fuel tanks. And so they found they had no sponsor, so the dad got other fuel, he fixed the tires, stayed up late at night working three shifts or whatever, and he said, Lewis Hamilton was being bullied by the kids, and he says, look, you can fight them here, I'm going to send you to martial arts school. You learn how to defend yourself. And you should fight them back. But also save your energy and the way you're going to best them is beat them on the track. Whatever they do to you, beat them on the track. If you're mad, win. If you feel cheated, win. Win so good. Win so decisively. Don't win by a little. Win by a lot. And that's how you beat him. He followed his father's advice, and he did it. And the world has never seen a more competent driver that has helped a self-taught engineer, a Olympic-level athlete, and the greatest driver that ever got behind the wheel of the fastest, some of the fastest vehicles on earth. Um, this is an example of knowing himself. He knew when he was a baby. The difference is nobody stopped him. Nobody stopped him from the knowledge he had of his original self. No one stopped him. No one got in his way. No one in his immediate intimate circle, familiar circle, said no. His brother was born with uh, cerebral palsy or, or had birth issues. And he had trouble walking and doing all that. And he said he never noticed that his brother had problems. He just figured out ways to help him keep up with him. Now his brother is a world champion rally driver. And these are the stories when people stick to the original self, but also the stories of what's in the way of that. What stops people? It's not them. It's them wanting to be loved by the others. It's like the person, why do you go to the gym? Why don't you just hang out with us? Well, you didn't, your nature didn't find that rewarding. So you kept doing you. You kept being you. And that doesn't mean, see, these are layers. These are layers, and some of them are just a foot thick, and some of them are simply microns thick. It's like people who sit in a church or synagogue or, or, or cathedral or, 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 or mosque and say, you know, something isn't right here. I read a book uh, called Maybella by Taslima Narasin, and she said she used to sit in the mosque on the women's side of the mosque in Bangladesh. And she said it just something wasn't right about it. And they had an imam and the women had to drink the betel juice that he spit out in a bucket and to show their loyalty and their devotion and their good, uh, their good and, and faithful devotion for this guy, they would drink his spit, betel juice from a gourd. And she would refuse to do it and she took beatings because she said just in her heart, in her soul, in the deepest part of her essence, it didn't seem right. But also she had a temperament that could endure 
the loneliness. Most people don't have that. Most people want to be accepted, to be liked, to feel uh, the false sense of security given when you are acknowledged or rewarded for being a part. You hear about stories of people joining fraternities. I recall being a young man in college and people said, are you going to pledge? I said, pledge? What, what the hell is that? And from my very essence, just the idea of joining groups of people for the sake of joining didn't make sense to me. It never made sense to me. But I also had a family that supported what people would call my rebellious or militant nature. That's what people said. Oh, you're militant. You're rebellious. No, I'm not going to join a frat. And at the time, I remember a friend of mine who wanted to fit in, and he went and joined the frat, and he came to me in a panicked state, and he said, yeah, they, they were covering everybody with pig fat, and we were, you had to crawl naked around the floor and uh, drink a piss in a mop bucket to join the frat. And I said, my God, when did you leave? He said, well, I'm in the frat now. I said, you did that? What did it offer? What the hell? I couldn't do it. He says, well, I'm going to get a great job. And he did. He got a great job later when he was at a bank through one of his frat brothers. Um, and, um, you know, he went on and lived his life. And a very miserable person. But for many people, they have gone through these types of hazing and these crossover rituals just to fit in. But there are many of us who just, it's not our nature. It's not our most primitive self. Was, there was a true story about a man who had a small zoo or animal show at a mall and he had raised a gorilla in the mall that he had got from poachers as a ch when it was an infant and raised it as his own child. And then one day the, the, the animal protective people came and they took the gorilla out and they took him to a larger uh, place to rehabilitate the gorilla and be amongst other gorillas. They had never seen another gorilla. And it immediately adapted to that environment. The gorilla knew something wasn't right. I shouldn't be in this cage doing a dog and pony show for this weird dude that says he's my dad. Just on a primitive level, he knew something wasn't right. Something isn't right. And most of us, like that gorilla, know when we're sitting somewhere that doesn't fit us and we're trying to fit in. You know what? Doesn't feel right. Or you know when you find your tribe. A lot of times the kids here, they come in the Dharma, they're all hanging out and they're all weird. I was just talking to Caitlin about it. And I said, they're all weird. They piss me off sometimes, but you know, they fit. And this is our tribe. You know, Caitlin's going through, you know, her medical stuff. And all the people came through, right? Everybody's coming through. Uh, Caitlin found her, her family. She found all these gorillas. And she realized that she was one of them. You know what I mean? And they send very sentimental letters to me. My mentors send letters to me asking about how Caitlin's are doing, which almost brings me to tears because I'm jealous that they don't send me sweet letters like that. <laughs> and they're my mentors of 30, 40 years, 50 years. And, and, and they, we, you know where you fit in. When your heart is open and you take that opaqueness away, you unlayer, you take the varnish off and you see what's really under it and you know where you belong and where you fit. It's just like the story of Radia or Karna in the, in the Vedas 
where he was adopted by a, a, a poor family and they would say, you look like a lion walking amongst lambs. And he always, even though he was well loved by his family, he always knew, yeah, something isn't quite right here. You often hear this with people who hide adoptions from children. Don't hide the adoption. Adoption is one of the most beautiful things people could do. I've adopted hundreds of kids, right? I have the, I have the ship of the damned around here. I got so many throwaways, um, but I let them know where they come from and where they're at. And then that transparency allows you to always be connected to your original self. And for those of us who have practices that we do, and then you find yourself troubled or trying to explain to people what you do, let that go. Keep working on unvarnishing, un delaminating that thing that's covered you up so that you can evolve that part of you. Don't try to explain to everybody. Share with them, but there's limits to that. Love who you love. Do what you love. Follow that love. And wherever it takes you, you will have known love in your life, be it your artistic endeavors, your academic or scholarly pursuits, the people you want to be around. I've always been drawn to certain aspects of different cultures. The martial arts, uh, we have an African martial art, there's a Brazilian version of it, there are the Asian martial arts of all kinds that have a common mother. And I've always immersed myself in that. With the yoga, I loved, I can close my eyes and I can breathe in India. And I never looked left or right to see if others approved of it. Because that is my essential nature. My mother knew that, my father knew that. I would get beaten as a child sometimes so I could fit in. I remember my grandmother beating me to uh, explain to me the, some aspect of the Christian faith and I knew that's not for me if you got to beat me to make me do it you never had to beat me to go to martial arts school you never had to beat me to uh, to go to puja you never had to beat me to undertake mantra and meditation but you did have to beat me to tell me uh, certain stories that in my mind just didn't pass the smell test I'm not going to follow anybody anywhere if it doesn't sound right. I'm not going to join a frat. I'm never going to be in a cult. I had kids I grew up with that joined the Jim Jones cult. They went down to Guyana with this weird dude, and uh, I know him very well. I think they were all killed, but I'm just not following people around in big herds. That's just not my nature. Maybe it's somebody else's nature, but I, I like I can be alone as well as I can be in a crowd. That's my nature. Whatever my primal archetype is, that's what it is. I think everybody should find out. Maybe there are people that you need, you're a bird person, you need to be in a flock. Or maybe you're a, a wolf that's not a lone wolf and you need to be in a pack and you just need to find your wolf pack. That's okay. And I think when you find that, you find a, a primordial peace of mind. You find the deepest essence of you is at peace and finds grace. Yet, you really, those of us who are working on enlightenment, the first question on the road to enlightenment, the gateway to that, is who am I?
and you're not what you were named, you're not your religion, you're not your city, your country, you're not your patrioticness, you're not any of that. Those are all things that are laminated and coded onto you. Underneath that, know who you are. Then when you pick up those garments, when you start to put the makeup on and you want to live your life in drag, then you did it by choice. Yeah, Z, I'm glad you brought up that example of the fraternity. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to my college days and all the crazy things that I witnessed. I had the same reaction. Like, you, you want to lock yourself in a basement for a week so you can join this group of people you don't know? And there was one frat, they had a giant St. Bernard, and apparently <laughs> the final test was that you had to jerk off this St. Bernard before you could get into the frat. Like, I, I just didn't get it. I never understood that. But let's get back to some of the other things you said, because I think you made some interesting points. So we've talked about the importance of knowing yourself, owning yourself. Just listening to you, there are a few things that come to mind, some practical advice that we can give our audience on how to do that. One thing is rejecting the need for validation, being okay, being you, and being by yourself. And if it means that you're not always part of the crowd, if it means that you have to spend time alone, or that others think of you as someone who's strange, or periodically there's some conflict that you have to manage, so be it. That's the cost of being yourself. And that cost, I think, pales in comparison to the benefit you get. Because when you are yourself and you're grounded in self-possession, that's when you really thrive. That's when you feel better. That's when you can do incredible things in this world. So just being comfortable charting your own course, not doing what so many people in today's world do, which is always try to fit in, always try to seek approval. That mindset, I think, is a critical starting point. From there, Z, you mentioned a couple of other things. You talked about martial arts and how no one ever had to drag you to martial arts. It was always something that you wanted to do. And I would expand on that idea a little bit and frame it in terms of follow your passion or maybe more than follow, but cultivate and stoke your passion. So if you find things that you're interested in, if there are certain outlets uh, for your energy that spark some real interest and excitement, nurture those, develop those, see where they go. On my journey, that's exactly what I've done with the writing. Uh, I've written for a long time, and you were the one who encouraged me to do more with the writing to cultivate that. That turned into some short essays. It helped uh, launch our project that we're working on together. It helped launch the spoken word. So it's taken this this path that's brought me in contact with some pretty interesting people. I think it's opened up a side of me that I never knew. And it all flowed pretty naturally because it was just spending time and nurturing that aspect of myself uh, that that I appreciated and that I got some value out of. So. I would start with those two things, having the right mindset and then stoking those intrinsic interests that we have. But let's talk about, Z, some of the other ways where we can really get to know the self. I think one of the the phrases you use, which I find really interesting, is this idea that we're not that special. So if you look at the world, we have 8 billion people and they're 10 different stories. Whatever we're going through is something that other people have gone through 
it's not just other people. It's hundreds of millions of people who have gone through the same thing. So there are templates for the challenges that we have. There are protocols for how to deal with them. As some succumb to them, some are able to rise to the challenge, transcend the challenge. Uh, so I think tapping into that understanding of those archetypes, if we know where we fit in that group of 10 stories, we have a better knowledge of ourselves. We also have examples that we can learn from. So how did other people successfully adapt or overcome the same things that I'm going through today in my life? Talk to us a bit about those primal archetypes and how we can figure out where we fit. <clears throat> well, then it goes back to, like I said, the story of the man who had a gorilla doing tricks in a mall. And he had trained that gorilla, but the gorilla was depressed and it just didn't feel right. And when it finally found others like it, it, it ran that way. And so all of us have primal archetypes. You were born to a mother and father and you came in here with the essence of eternity, going back tens of thousands of years of human stories are in your DNA. And how things turned out is a well-known <clears throat> wheel, 10 different stories. And what we found from all of those is if you take ownership of yourself, it will not be easy. It will not always show immediate reward, but you will always be able to live with yourself. You will always be able to be at peace with you. You may not be at peace with the world, but you will be at peace with yourself. And the world is as big or as small as the limits of you. So if you don't fit in one place, find a place where you fit. Find where you belong. Find the love of your life that accepts you, enjoys you. When you have a true good relationship, I shared that I've had certain friends that have been my friends since I was a little boy. They took different paths in their life from me. And that's okay because where we meet <clears throat> is in the level of essence. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where we meet is in the level of essence. They understand me. Even the parts of me they don't get, they understand and accept. And that's one of the most beautiful relationships you can have. And though we are different, they understand my temperament, my personality, how I became who I am today. And there's a freedom that most people will never know. I speak, I've spoken to many people, I say, who's your best friend? And they'll tell you, well, I don't have friends, I have associates. I have a person I can talk about certain things with and somebody I can't talk about other things with. My friends, I can talk to them about anything, good or bad. I have no secrets. And it is something very liberating about that. Because those people teach you how to be with others in the world. So if you have no reference of real friendships, you can't have real intimacy. If you have a bunch of people around you that you have to purse your words or filter your thoughts or anything like that with, those aren't real friends. They're real associates. 
and they may be real advantages to hang out, but they have constraints. And freedom has no constraints. With it goes great responsibilities, but there aren't constraints. So <clears throat> as you get to know yourself, like knowing an animal, right? So you, 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 you go to the pet store and you, you get a wolf, a pet wolf. And you carry that pet wolf around like you carry a overly inbred Pomeranian. You say, here's, here's Wolfie. And you put a bow tie on Wolfie and he carries him. One day Wolfie just rips out of that thing and tears your arm off. You say, why did Wolfie do that? Well, Wolfie was a wolf. Wolfie wasn't your purse dog. It's a wolf. Honor that. Appreciate it. And know that that wolf was never meant to be that way. And so when you look at yourself, what are you meant to be? Who are you meant to be? What, what hobby do you have? What music do you like? What experience inspires you? Don't look left or right. I remember once <clears throat> having a couple here. And I asked the woman, I said, how do you feel? You're going through uh, medical challenges, health challenges. And her husband, she looked over at her husband, she asked her husband, how do I feel? He says, well, in the morning you feel okay. In the afternoon, that's when you start to go down. I said, I didn't ask you. I asked her and she could not answer because so much of her identity was layered into his opinion of her. She was dying of a terminal illness that was caused by this constriction. And the cure, the remedy, was to be unconstricted. But she had built her whole life around his identity of her. So before she could begin the process of being well, she had to uncocoon herself. And he actually was willing to do that. He says, I, I never noticed that. But it's something we've created. And she probably introduced that to him through her upbringing. Maybe the archetype of her mom or whoever. But it was unhealthy. So as we start to discover our, our true self, our primal self, then we begin to understand better our engagement with the world and who we are and our needs are, are, are what, what makes us thrive, what suppresses us. Yet, again, the warning. When you do that, you probably won't be what you called yourself before. Your conversation won't be about your career or your frat. It'll be about things that truly interest you and truly concern you. And it may alienate people that you've been around that they themselves can't do that with themselves. I listen to people talk and they'll talk about topics that aren't inspiring at all to them. But because they're so used to wearing the garments of pleasing others that they go right into this kind of very uninspiring diatribe about who they are and what they do. Years ago, I met a man who was a master 
harp player, just a virtuoso of the harp. But he worked as a parking enforcement officer in Washington, D.C. It was the weirdest thing. <clears throat> but it was something very enlightening about that. He worked as the parking enforcement guy in D.C. as a means to allow him to play his harp as much as he wanted. And I said, wow, I dig this. I get it. I get this guy. So he rendered unto Caesar that which is his, that which is Caesar's, and he kept the rest for himself. You understand what I mean by that, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, I get it, Z. I think that so often we draw identity just from whatever situation we happen to be in. So if you've got a particular job, then you absorb all that drama. You get involved in the internal conflicts. That starts to define you. You get your esteem from what you're doing, which to a point maybe is okay. I mean, I guess it's okay if that's really what you care about and that's fundamental. But it goes back to another conversation we had on dysfunction, which is when we start using things in ways that they're not intended, we run into problems. And so if the job is just a job and it's a means to put food on the table, then treat it as such. Invest as little time and energy as possible and spend your life doing things that you really care about. Cultivating the deeper relationships that you talked about, following your hobbies, your passions, whatever your dreams are. If you have to do it on the side, so be it. Uh, life isn't perfect. Uh, I think at times we all have to make trade-offs, but at least having some outlets for the things that resonate, the things that are more fundamental to our humanity, give us a richer life. They also create options because we end up meeting people, we end up changing our way of thinking, and perhaps it does become a career or it does lead to a different path than we would have taken otherwise. But I think when we get so wrapped up in playing a role, you know, maybe that's it. That's the best way to describe it. It's like we go into different situations and various people have expectations of us. And it's almost like we're checking in at work or we're checking in with family or we're checking in at some social event that we're going to. And when we check in, we're given a mask and that mask says we have to act in a certain way. We have to play a certain role. I think as long as we recognize that it's a role, then we do whatever we need to do to smooth the interaction, spend as little effort as we need to, and then we go back and we rest in the security of self-knowledge. And we're able to thrive because we're aware of who we are. We're connected to that. We've got that strong foundation. Uh, so I think that model works. But I think the challenge, as you're describing, is when we start buying into the roles and those roles become us and we're allowing other people and their expectations to define us, that's when we lose who we are. That's when we lose all of our passion, our light, everything that we find meaningful and interesting. And we do it either because we're looking for approval or that's just what we've done. Maybe it's the force of habit and that momentum carries us forward. And we've never questioned the choices we're making until we get to a point where there's enough pain and frustration that we have to step back and say, hey, maybe I don't want to play this role, or maybe I'll play this role to the extent that I need to. But then when I get home, I'm going to take the mask off. I'm not going to go to bed in this mask. I'm not going to carry this around 24-7. I'm going to know what the limits are and the boundaries are. 
and everything that I don't have to devote to obligation, I'm going to keep to myself and I'm going to use that to cultivate my my intellect, my consciousness, everything that animates me as a human being. So, Z, that's what I hear when when I'm listening to you. Is that the same way that you're thinking about this? Yeah, Vin, I just set up and I had a big smile on my face because I started thinking about funny things in life when people struggle with self-ownership. And when you study the human condition from the point of view of physics, the study of the phenomena of, of, of natural events, the, uh, the natural phenomena, you look at people and we're all people, right? And, and we, we identify ourselves in ways that other people identify us or you want to fit in a group. And it's actually very funny. And I think about a few cases. Uh, when I worked in the entertainment business, we had a guy, DJ Fuse. And um, he was a, grew up in the Midwest somewhere. And he was a, a what people would call just a regular kind of Midwestern white boy. But he's one of the best hip hop DJs you'll ever find. And he grew up, in, he moved to the Bay Area and he grew up in a very eclectic neighborhood. Nobody gave a damn except that he could play music. So he was never identified as a Midwestern white dude. And he always had a thing for um, um, dark-skinned black women, right? That was, that was just his thing. That's what he loved. And he ended up marrying a, a woman from Africa and they have a bunch of beautiful kids. And DJ Fuse and I would room together. And at the time I would work with a lot of uh, groups that were involved in, 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 in the nationalism movement and so forth and, and human rights movement. And they would all come to my room and they just assumed because he was with me that he was some black dude from Africa, but he's a white dude from the Midwest, but be the way he carried himself. And even that changed people's view of him. And was, we laugh about it to this day because the illusion of how we put people in categories or, or the false narratives that we, we reinforce with ourselves. And another thing, I remember traveling around India. And when I went around India, it's like, just like being in Africa. So whenever I grew up and I would see Indian people, I would always see another African person until I found certain Indian people would go out of their way to describe to white people that they weren't black. And that was always one of the craziest dances. It was the most dysfunctional ballet I would ever see. So there would be an Indian guy that kind of looked like my uncle or my mother or whatever, and he would be going out of his way to explain, you know, I really love country western music. I vote, you know, Republican. I would really like to join the Sons of the South, and I want to explain to you how I am not black. I want to let you... And just the fact that he had to explain he wasn't black meant that he was black, and it was just friggin' hilarious. I also... I've grown up with people all around the world doing uh, martial arts, so I have people that I consider who are as close to me as anyone can have family who are from all kinds of places. But the way we talk together, you can't, listening to us, you don't know who's what. You don't know who's who. Uh, I, I have a dear friend, uh, like a brother of me, Phil Wong. We grew up together, martial arts kid, a little younger than me, and we just talk about random stuff together. But if you hear us talking over the phone, you don't know who's who. And so these false ideas about who you are are really people layering on. Who are you under all of that stuff? Can you say who you are? Maybe you like this or that, but the pressure, the constriction of the straight jacket of illusion that's put on you kills you. I remember years ago, 
working with some uh, young Indian guys on martial arts, right? And, and fighting. And the first thing I had to get through to them is that you can fight. You can actually fight. You're not coolies. You're not model minorities. You're not non-black blacks. You're not diet Negroes. You are from a long line of fighters and warriors and soldiers and doctors and world builders. And so in order for you to lift your leg and throw a punch, you have to take that straight jacket off to see yourself only as a coolie or only as a servant of the colonial lord. That's your only reward is to be a good servant. That is not true. Undo yourself. It's just like you tell women, you could do anything you want. I have women students who are Tai Chi and yoga teachers that are as good as anyone you'll meet. I have a student in Australia named Paige. She can do anything I can do. Anything I can do. Just a, a goofy white girl from somewhere that has all the gifts and talents of this crazy African dude because the soul of her studies and her yearning to do her thing was bigger than the straight jacket she was put in. So people would say, I remember having my students one time, we were in a room with low light doing a nighttime class and my teacher was looking at us through the shining of the full moon. And she said, he said, my God, when I watched your students move and do the Tai Chi, I couldn't tell who was who. I couldn't tell you from them. They, they, are, they have your essence, everything. Under the moonlight, the truth of who they were was revealed. Just like a, a, an animal in the jungle, in the moonlight, and you just feel it move. You see it move, but you don't, you know, this is, diff this is another, the reflection of the sun through the moon gave this other reality. And so we have that reality, but you have to get through that straitjacket then. And when we do that, we know who we are. We feel right where we feel right. We do what we do. We love who we love. We feel good. And even though the world may look at you weird, the world is a big place and we all have somewhere we can fit. And you may have to go thousands of miles away to find familiarity, or it may be right around you, but you never looked up to see it. And it goes back to when I was working with these young Indian fellows. When I see them, I see me. I see me. I see the power. And then I see them look at me and be nervous, especially the women folk and the, 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 the older people. They get nervous. Don't go there. Don't go there because you, you might be naked. They might find out that you're really a wolf and not a Pomeranian, and they'll hunt you like a wolf. They might find that you're really a silverback ape and not a pet monkey in a tutu, like in that, that mall. And that'll be a scary life. But you know what? It'll be scary, but it'll be a life. You follow me, Vin? Yeah, I think this point about the straitjacket is so interesting. So just get rid of the straitjacket. Just take it off. Just be yourself. The only thing I would add, Z, is before you do that, you have to know that the straitjacket exists. You have to know that you're in a freaking straitjacket. And it's not just that your arms are glued to your sides and you can't move for some genetic reason. There's actually some mental limitation which is confining you. That 
was my biggest struggle, just seeing the existence of that straitjacket. And I think all the tools that you've mentioned, stop seeking validation, stop seeking approval, be okay with others not endorsing your choices, cultivate your passion, cultivate close relationships. These are ways to expand the self, I think give you a clearer picture of who you are and let you see whatever shackles you've put on yourself. And once you see that, you have the freedom to take them off and then you can start to move. And as you put it, that's when you can really start to live. That's right. And so to be free, things yearn to be free. A damn fish wants to be free to be in the ocean or the river or a lake and not in your damn fishbowl. And also know that there's a liability to that. Accept the liability to that with pride and with um, sincerity and with character is that, yeah, you will be rejected by a lot of people. And when you move through this world <clears throat> where most people have compromised themselves and you have to work and earn your living, know that what I said earlier, keep that near your heart like a great teacher told to me. Years ago, I wanted to quit my engineering job and just be a sannyasa or a monk or a pandit or something or just immerse myself in my monastic studies. And he says, no, no, you, you need to fulfill your responsibilities to your family and pay your way. Um, and you have responsibilities right now, so you have to keep doing that. So what you do is render unto Caesar that which is his. Go to work. You do. But keep everything else for yourself. Don't give the job anything other than the time that you are getting paid to do. Don't carry your work home. Don't identify yourself by your job. Don't even talk about it when you're not at work. But when you're at work, be on the highest level of professionalism and do that. When I was in the military, I had a commander named Rywood Goosegow. He was a he was a third pilot, F-105 Thunder Chief Ace pilot. Uh, uh, just a real uh, hero, kind of superhero guy. And I found out years later he was running the Bernie Sanders campaign in the Midwest or in, the, in, the, in, in New England somewhere. And I was so honored to have served under him in the middle because he looked after me. He accepted me for who I was. He didn't see me as just a rogue militant person with independent thought and thinking that could also fulfill his military obligation. He did the same thing and he fought for what he believed and it cost him some rank in the military, but he also is alive and well and he fought for what he believed and what a way to go, what a way to live. Right, Vin? Yeah. Yeah, just leave nothing on the table. Just go balls out. And maybe people love you, maybe they hate you, but ultimately it's your life. So it's whatever path you want to create uh, that you want to forge for yourself. Even the process of understanding who you are, that's part of the life journey. So just do that. Uh, live life with no regrets. Uh, that's something, Z, that I've always admired about you and that I aspire to do. And I think the closer we can get to that ideal, and if we start rejecting the conventions and the ideas that other people impose on us, that's when, as we've talked about, we start to live. That's when we feel free. We can breathe. And I think that's when we can fulfill, from a spiritual sense, a higher purpose, because there's no point to life without diversity. There's no reason for us to get together if everyone thinks the same way. The entire evolution of our species, the advancement of, the hum of humanity, comes because we bring different skill sets and ideas 
and perspectives and interests to the table. And those pieces interact and sometimes they fight and sometimes they coalesce. But that process is what moves us forward. So let's embrace that process. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.